Today on Physically Spiritual, I have the honor of talking with Dr. Matthew Brudinger. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Well, today on the show, I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Matthew Bruninger. He's an assistant professor of psychology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, here in his MA in theology at Ave Maria University, and a doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Baylor University. Dr. Bruninger is a licensed clinical psychologist. He is the founder of Wellspring Counseling and Coaching, the author of Finding Freedom in Christ, Healing Life's Hurts, and the host of Ask a Catholic Therapist on YouTube. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bruninger. Thanks. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm just going to call you Matt from now on. <laughs> Please. You told me to before the show. <laughs> Please. Um, so I, I like to start every guest out with this, this question. You know, what we do in the church, what we do in ministry, I think it, it comes out of our lives and it comes from the story that God has written in our life. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what did the Lord do in your life to bring you this space of, of working in mental health, but also integrating faith into mental health? Yeah. Um, so like, you know, most sons, I looked up to my dad and I wanted to be a counselor because he was a counselor. And at some point in high school, my faith dissipated and, you know, became for all practical purposes, non-existent. And um, as is often the case, not always, but as is often the case, um, with that came a whole bunch of you know, bad decisions. And um, I was unanchored and unmoored to any morals and values. And I ended up you know, hurting myself, certainly, with a lot of the choices I made and, and hurting other people. And so I went to, to college, was in college about a year and a half, and dropped out. Wow. I was just a mess. I was just, I was, I had no purpose. I had no meaning. I had no plan. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't able to focus. I wasn't disciplined in any way. I mean, it was just, it was a bad go of it. And so I dropped out and um, it's hard to, it's, it's really hard to describe it. I mean, life was just dark. It's just really dark. It was just a bad place, um, emotionally, spiritually. And um, one night I ended up on the doorstep of um, I had an, an aunt of mine hmm. who was sort of a very, had, a, had had a big conversion, was very religious, very Catholic, um, was, a, was a TOB speaker. Hmm. And I kind of, you know, tried to avoid, <laughs> like avoid her for the most part. <laughs> Um, when I was sort of at my worst but then when, when I was really in my darkest place I, I ended up on her doorstep one night and she and her husband brought me in and they they really I mean in some ways evangelized me um, but first they listened you know first they listened yeah. and, and they heard the struggle and they heard the heartache and they heard the pain and they heard the searching and they heard the fear and the loneliness and then they began to introduce me to the faith, or reintroduce me to the faith, a faith that had teeth, a faith that had a capacity to touch these parts of my life that I didn't think faith could touch. 
And so they introduced me to the Blessed Mother and I started praying the rosary and then, you know, started going back to mass and went back to confession and the sacraments became a part of my life. And then introduced me to things like theology of the body. And my life really changed dramatically, just dramatically. And so I decided to transfer universities. I, I just felt like I had kind of started off on the wrong foot at the original university. So I transferred universities, fell in with a great group of young people who were trying to live an authentic Catholic life. Um, but I, I had switched from sort of being a psychology major. I thought, I, you know, I don't know what I want to do. I think I'll be an English lit major. Mm. So I studied English lit. Um, sort of all what, I, what I've always loved the most, even in literature, is sort of a character's story, a character's psychology. Yeah. Um, and, and so anyway, you know, I went from, from that to, I started working for a judge and I was uh, working for a judge in this, this drug court program, which is essentially a program where you try to help people uh, get sober and enter recovery using um, the court system as a, as a behavioral stick. So rather than putting people in jail, you use jail as a way to encourage positive behavior. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was working with all these alcoholics and addicts. I was really interested in their stories and really interested in how psychology could play a role in recovery. But I also became really interested in recovery, this model of recovery, like the 12 steps. So many of them were in 12-step programs. And the heart of the 12 steps was this encounter. I mean, it... It fascinated me that the 12 steps said that by the time you go through these steps, what we can guarantee is that you will have had a spiritual experience profound enough to keep you sober. And that to me was like a bold claim. Yeah. And then I, you know, so I go to the appendix of this book and it says, what is a spiritual experience? And it says that it is a, a radical shift in one's personality, in their attitudes, ideas, and behaviors this deep psychological change. And so I got really interested in this sort of intersection of faith and psychology. And I ended up, um, interestingly, down in Belize visiting a friend. And I ran into this monk. And he was talking about reading St. Thomas Aquinas. And I was talking about reading Shakespeare. And the way he was talking about Aquinas made me want to read him. Yeah. I just thought, this sounds amazing. This I hadn't been exposed to, to Aquinas at that point. And so I came home from that trip and I decided I wanted to study theology. Hmm. Um, and sort of naively, I thought it was, sort of thought it was going to be more like catechetics. Yeah. You know, so this is what the church teaches. And, and I went to Ave Maria and it was like a, it was a theology program. You know, it was, <laughs> it was not catechetics. It was theology. So, um, it was good. It was like drinking out of a fire hydrant. But even yeah. in theology, what I was so interested in when we were reading St. Thomas, what I, I was really interested in, what are the sort of psychological components to some of these theological realities? And when we talk about virtue, in some ways, virtue is talked about in a way that, you know, how, does the, how do you become patient? Do patient things like practice patience. Um, how do you become courage or courageous? Do courageous things. But then I start thinking, well, how do emotions serve as an impediment to that? Yeah. How does how do our cognitions and and maybe sort of faulty 
thinking or irrational thoughts impede this? Um, to what extent do goals, sort of if we're goal-oriented creatures, to what extent does having clear, clarified goals play a role in this? And uh, I just, the psychological dimension was really, really interesting to me. And, and how could we maybe even help people psychologically in order to help them advance spiritually? Um, how does our past play a role in this? Does it? Does it shape how we think about virtue? Does it shape how we enact virtue? Does, um, so anyway, the, the, I started thinking in this program, like, I really want to go back to psychology. I really want to go back to psychology. But at this point, I have an English lit degree and I have a theology degree. And I kind of took a stab in the dark. And it, it was a really providential moment for me. But the way I ended up at Baylor and, and the lab I ended up in, I actually hadn't originally intended to be in this particular professor's lab. But he was one of the last interviews of the day. The guy who I went down there to study with, I didn't really click with. And so I, I, this guy said, look, I'm a neuroscientist by training, but I'm really interested in faith and psychology. Yeah. And I was like, I am too. <laughs> and I said, look, I only want to come here. Like, I only want to work with you. And so if, like, if I, I don't want to get into the program, if I can't work with you. And you know, two days later, he called and said, oh, we want to have you in the lab. And, and so I got to study, you know, he, he was a devout Baptist. Um, and he now actually interestingly runs a he runs a very large mental health he left Baylor he now runs a really large mental health clinic in Houston called the Hope and Healing Center really tries to thread the needle sort of bringing empirically based psychology into contact with people of faith and the faith community and um, just a tremendous a tremendous guy a tremendous mentor Dr. Matt Stanford but man he worked with me over the course of three or four years and and just allowed me to begin to think about these things. Like, how do I think about this? And it was a space to think about it. And so, you know, that for me, sort of academically, that's how I ended up in the space I'm in. But personally, wanting to bring some of that freedom that I've experienced, that real freedom. And, and I saw something in the 12 steps. You know, I, I saw heroin addicts. I mean, men and women who, who were terribly addicted. Yeah. I saw them go from the pits of despair to being happy, joyous, and free. Mm. And that to me was, was shocking. Like, and I want to understand how that works, but I want to understand what role, like, how does God play a role in this? And how did the 12 steps maybe open or dispose one to this? And so, I became really interested in the 12 steps and, and then trying to bring the 12 steps and the freedom it offers to other people um, because I thought there was a wisdom in them. So I, I, de I devoured that book, just devoured it and tried to implement some of the practices in my own life um, and saw real changes. And so, so that for me was I wanted to bring this to other people. Uh, so that's sort of how the book arose and that's, yeah. you know, and, I, and part of it is just being, it's vocation, man. It, it's, it's this unique thing that God has given me that makes me fascinated in people and fascinated in their stories and the ability to sit with really painful material and the ability to sort of invite people to walk into it in such a way that they might begin to 
heal from it. I mean, part of it is just how God's made me. Um, It's just, it excites me. It's the stuff that I get ashing about. It's the stuff I'm interested in. It's like I have friends here in the philosophy department who the thought of sitting with, these are good, good men and women, you know, but the thought of sitting with somebody who's sharing their deepest, darkest pain, I mean, it's just like horrifying and overwhelming to them. Yeah. I just, yeah, I feel really comfortable there. I feel really comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit of my story, man. Yeah. There's a, a priest of our diocese, Father Mark Davis, said something once that struck me. And he's, this was common that different ages have different spiritualities that kind of mark them, of like a school of spirituality that arose. And, and you only kind of notice it after the fact. And, and he kind of opened the question up, well, what, what would our age's unique contribution to the spiritual tradition be? And he said, I think the 12 steps are going to be our age's sort of contribution. Um, so that, that really piqued my interest. Uh, on the show soon in the next year or so, I'm going to be doing a whole series on addictions. But it's awesome. So I'm kind of doing a deep dive right now uh, to go with my awesome. previous studies and work with it. So, um, yes. so you're speaking my language. Yeah. And, um, Some deeply Catholic stuff. You know, oh, Bill, yeah. Wilson, Bill Wilson, the founder of NEA, almost entered the Catholic Church. Hmm. Um, he was receiving instruction under Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Hmm. And and he just couldn't, I think it was papal infallibility. He couldn't get over papal infallibility. But he had a real soft spot for the Catholic Church. His sponsor was actually a Jesuit priest. Huh. Uh, and so, and there's letters between he and, and his priest, Father Ed Dowling, hmm. uh, the priest. Don Eden, is writing a book. I don't know if it's out yet. She's either it's either out or it's soon to be out on okay. Father Nowling. Fascinating creature, but fascinating man. Um, but Bill Wilson, if, if in the 12 steps, there's this fascinating step where you have to admit all of the wrongs that you've done hmm. to God, yourself, and another human being. And there's actually a line in there that's sort of often missed. And it says, for those of us who belong to a denomination that requires confession, we will want to and must seek out the appropriate authority. Hmm. Sort of Bill's nod to Catholics saying like, hey, um, you know, doing this with a, a secular sponsor, like if you're a Catholic, you want to and you should seek out a priest to do this with. Um, yeah. So there is a deep, I think, compatibility there. Uh, some people can steer it in the wrong direction and but sure. but I think deep down there's a, a deep compatibility with yeah. Catholicism. I'm I'm curious about your interest in um, literature because yeah I think good literature like is a study of psychology. It is, dude. Like it I'm, is. I'm reading the Brothers K right now, and I just finished Brideshead Revisited. And I fell in love with yeah. the novel. It's yes, like, like these books yeah. are. It's like such a study of psychology. Like even better than yeah. psychology textbooks in many ways, maybe. Yeah. Yes. So I'm just interested, like what. Like what are the what like what's the one or two or three books for you? Yeah, that really speak yeah. into the human person. Yeah. So for me, um, the texts in particular, the stories in particular that I think were the most amazing psychologically, um, were actually many of Shakespeare's plays. So I really, I mean, the courses I took, I took the most any sort of particular genre, or I took Shakespeare, the most Shakespeare courses, and um, it seems to me that. 
his insights into the into the human person and human nature, I mean, they're incredibly profound. Like they're incredibly broad. It, and and then not only does he have these insights, but he's able to articulate them in the context of like meter, th- this masterful meter and rhyme. And yeah. I mean, it's just, those insights alone would be fascinating. But then to be able to structure them in such a, a beautiful way. Um, but his, his ability to capture deep, like profound, love self-sacrificial love mm. his ability to capture a sort of immature teenage love his understanding of madness his understanding of jealousy envy revenge bloodlust i mean he he captures these things in, i mean shakespeare to me should be up there among the great psychologists yeah given his insights into the human person and human nature um but those are the texts that I was reading and I was just captivated by. He gets people and he gets different types of people and he understands how this personality type or how this vice would interact with this vice. Yeah. I mean, it, it's really hard to get that in a realistic way. I mean, we can sort of like write these cookie cutter, this is how an angry person treats a passive person. But he he's able to like explicate through dialogue in a nuanced way, how somebody who's filled with revenge or bloodlust might interact with a naive or passive person. And, I mean, it just was, in my mind, a masterclass in psychology. Um, so those are the texts that, you know, I devoured. Um, yeah. 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 I, when, as you're, you're talking, I'm thinking of um, Rod Dreher a few years ago wrote a book called How Dante Can Save Your Soul. Yeah, nah. and it's uh, it's kind of his story of his healing journey from some sickness. But he was reading Dante, and yep. Um, yep. he was just talking about the the power of the story to transform his heart. One, especially in relationship to his family, but in there he has this little section on um, basically the the nervous system in, in stories, and how like yeah. narrative affects our brain. Uh, and basically, in summary, it seemed like he was trying to make the point that that as we're reading it, it's as if we're experiencing what we're reading, right? Because the more primitive parts of our nervous system don't yes. distinguish well between yeah. what's in our imagination and what's in our yes. senses. Yes. Um, and and so just thinking of the the power of stories to transform our lives too. And this is why, I mean, I, I've been talking with, um, so Scott Hahn and I have been talking a lot about about this idea of narrative and story and the Bible. Um, and, and I mean, in some ways, I mean, it goes back to, I mean, in some ways it goes back to prayer. It goes back to our ability to steep ourselves in a story so that it almost becomes ours. Yeah. Um, really does offer a, a bridge to transforming us. And, and so maybe the difference between say, Shakespeare and scripture is that I can enter um, a story like King Lear or Richard III or Romeo and Juliet. Or I can enter it and sort of, it, it, it's almost like it's mine. And depending on what character I identify with or how I enter it, I can be moved and shaped and have insights. But scripture is unique in that it is my story. Yeah. Like it is, it actually is my story. And to put myself 
in that story and to steep myself in it and allow myself to be moved and shaped by it. In some ways, this is what like discursive meditation, I think, is where yeah. we pick a story, we make ourselves a character in it, and then we say, like, how would, how would I have felt? And do my do the feelings that are arising in me actually track with how Christ says He feels? He was moved with compassion. I feel angry and bitter. I feel self-righteous or I feel, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? And trying to see that in the story so that my reaction can become like Christ's reaction. I mean, I think all this to say, story can profoundly affect us. Yeah. People us, transform us. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of like, I know in the 12 step movement, one of the big things is hearing other people's stories, you know, giving oh, yeah. a lead, giving a witness yes. almost. And the whole, yes. you know, the big book is followed with probably a hundred stories, stories of people's recoveries. Story. Yes. Um, stories. And, and there's a, there's a, a beauty in the steps that I think matches the, the structure of the church. If you think of like what the church is giving us as deliverables, I think we have, um, there's three pieces. I think there's sacraments. Mm-hmm. You got your, you know, go to mass, go to confession. There's, you know, your individual piety, your, your personal prayer time, your meditation, but then there's also relationships, right? There's the parish, the faith happens in the family. And then it happens in a family of families, which is the parish. Yes. Um, so we have these three ways basically in which we encounter, encounter God, right? We encounter God in the church, in the church's rights, in our personal prayer, right? In our experience of the Holy Spirit. And then we also experience him in one another. And I think the 12-step program also contains all three of these elements. Yes. Agreed. No, I, I, I think they map onto each other really nicely. And, and in that way, for folks who, you know, part of what I was trying to do with the book is for folks who maybe weren't engaging the riches the faith has to offer, you could sort of bring them in the back door invite them into it in a sort of step-like model. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, let's, can we nerd out a little bit and talk about the yeah, nervous no. system? Oh, so yeah. As, as you're, you're talking about this, um, like I've spent a ton of time contemplating like the interaction of the external senses, the internal senses, mm-hmm. and the, the nervous system. And, um, like I've been deeply influenced by the work of Dr. Stephen Porges in the polyvagal theory, well, but also um, by uh, you know understanding the, the central nervous system too, the kind of lateralization of the brain theory, attachment yeah. theory, um, yeah. But then also highly influenced by kind of contemporary understandings of trauma, you know, through people like Russell Van der Kolk or Dr. Peter Levine, Dr. Pat Ogden. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And, and as I'm sort of mingling all these things in, in my mind and trying to synthesize and understand for yeah. my own practice, but also to teach it, um, it just strikes me that so much of it, one, affirms a lot of the wisdom in our tradition that's already there. Absolutely. But two, yep. um, I think can inform what we're doing even more deeply <laughs> in that I, I think a lot of what, um, there's just a ton like lingering onto our minds and onto our practice from the enlightenment. Yeah, we, we don't really think like Catholics. Yeah, we don't really live yeah. like Catholics because we're yeah. in this soup that's not Catholic. Yeah, and like Shakespeare was on the other end of it, 
Like yes. he was kind of maybe after Christendom, but yep. but the world was largely still Christian. And so and so he was still in that soup. And so the truth just comes out through it. Uh, but we're kind of in the opposite space. Um, and so I'm so intrigued by, uh, like when we imagine something and if it's vivid, right. Yeah. Yeah. Our body reacts to it as if it's actually happening to some extent. And that's good and bad, right? Um, it's bad when it's trauma. Um, and and so part of the, you know, working with a lot of veterans, I've done a lot of training with, um, veterans who have PTSD and, and one of the problems is this image, these intrusive thoughts, yeah. one of the criteria of PTSD is these intrusive thoughts. Um, they're reacting on a physiological level as if the threat and danger is still real and present. Yeah. So that's like the bad news, right? But the good news is that we can use that to our advantage as well. Yeah. Right? Um, but that is a fascinating... I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, Andrew, that and there's all sorts of ways. I mean, this, the one thing that I'm passionate about sort of in psychology is uh, people get really territorial in psychology. And so, um, are, you know, are you doing this kind of therapy? Well, if not, then you're, you know, are you doing this kind of And so it turns out, overwhelmingly, um, research shows that most of the common therapies are about equally effective for almost all disorders. Um, there's a couple nuances there. Um, that are maybe notable, like um, exposure therapy is particularly helpful for specific phobias. So like, you know, if you're afraid of spiders, going back and talking about your relationship with your parents isn't particularly helpful, right? But but for most mental health issues, the major therapies are about equally effective. Um, and so, so I, I like to really... Um, instill that in my students uh, but all of that to say one of the ways I think about therapy one of the ways I think about what what I do is trying to help people take that event that feels so scary and that's causing all this activation mm-hmm. and help them how to say this deactivate the central nervous system's response to that event. I mean, that is, uh, I actually think um, it, it's called the neurotic paradox, but the idea is that the more you avoid something you're afraid of, the more distress it causes you. Um, so I'm terrified of sharks, right? There's all sorts of reasons why, but I'm terrified of sharks. And so a couple of years ago, my son says, hey, dad, we're in Florida. Let's go swim to that buoy. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And he's like, come on, dad. And there's people out there already, right? This is, and I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. The second I said no, my anxiety decreased. Mm. Or better, short term, I felt better. But then my mind goes, yeah, good. thank God you didn't swim out there. Good choice. And you just saved yourself. And my, my anxiety actually, and fear of sharks, de- uh, increases long term because of my short-term avoidance of it. And so one way that I think about therapy is I think that a lot of our problems are actually caused by avoidance, avoidance of uncomfortable thoughts, memory, feelings. Yeah. And sort of this this activation of our central nervous system, right, causes this tremendous fear. And part of what I think we actually need to learn to do is 
approach the painful thing and learn to hold it and learn to sit with it. And the paradox is oftentimes when we approach the thing we're most afraid of, our anxiety ultimately decreases, our, our distress decreases. So one way that PTSD is thought about is that it, it's, a, it's a disorder of avoidance. That one of the major differentiators between people who get PTSD and those who don't is those who get PTSD are significantly more likely to try to avoid thoughts, feelings, memories, triggers of the traumatic event. Yeah. So yeah, all this to say, anyway, yeah, I, I think that action is really clear between yeah, memory and central nervous system, imagination and central nervous system. I um, as as you're talking, this strikes me that I've seen a, a few different studies about, um, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons why. I think it's a complex issue, but one of the reasons why most therapies are equally as effective is because I think the primary deliverable is the person of the therapist, right? It's the yes. relationship. The overwhelming, the best predictive factor we have. So when, when we look at sort of what contributes the most to therapeutic change, what contributes most to a positive outcome for a client, it's usually these common factors, they're called common factors, things that are in, found in every therapy. And overwhelmingly, the best predictor that's within our control. So, so it turns out in study after study, the best predictor of therapeutic outcome is external factors that we have no control over. Like you got a job, you got a girlfriend, um, your wife's job got easier and her stress reduced. A whole bunch of things that are outside of our control are actually like the number one driving factor for therapeutic outcome. But like, let's bracket those because we have no control over them. The thing that you have control over that's the biggest predictor of whether or not therapy will be successful, study after study after study, is the therapeutic alliance. Hmm. It's, it's our relationship. Yeah. It's the quality of the bond and agreement on tasks and goals. Do I feel like we're collaborating and like we both understand the problem the same, we agree on how we're going to work on it, and I feel like you get me. You're safe. Hmm. The, and by the way, so then they do variations on this theme. So they have therapists try different therapies. And it turns out that there are certain therapists who are just better at doing any therapy than experts with that therapy. And it's like, why? How could you be better at doing this? Because they're really good at establishing that bond. Yeah. There's actually a couple factors they have that are really important to, to therapeutic outcomes. And one of them is the ability to establish trusting, safe bond with somebody where they, they're willing to go certain places with you. Mm. You're hundred percent right. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I would wonder, so like in, in your book, you talk about primary wounds and secondary wounds. Yeah. The fact that there's sort of some wounds that are underneath things and others are more of like a symptom of the deeper thing. Yeah. And the, the, the deepest wound, the most primary wound is original sin, right? Absolutely. And, the primordial and thinking of thinking of like that temptation of the serpent, like basically God doesn't really love you. Like he doesn't want yeah. you to be like him. Don't trust him. And then once they sin, they hide, right? They hide, they put on fig leaves, they hide from each other. It's that distrust that yes. if they really knew they're not going to love me, they're going to hurt me. Yep. Yeah. So it just strikes me that the, the therapeutic relationship speaks truth into the lie of original sin. Yeah. 
It's, I mean, that's actually great. So, and, and there's this great passage in, in the Catechism, I think, 397. It says, it's talking about Adam and Eve and original sin. And it says something like, all subsequent sin, after the fall of Adam and Eve, after their disobedience, all subsequent sin is a result of disobedience and a lack of trusting in the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. That in some ways, all of my sin is characterized, it is characterized in part by a, like, yeah, but what if you don't want what's best for me? Like, what if you're not trustworthy and good? And, and that's why I turn and pursue my own things. Like, I turn and pursue them precisely because I think, like, maybe you don't want what's best for me. Maybe you're not safe. Maybe I'm not going to get what I think I need to make me happy. Maybe you're a liar. And so, I mean, Adam and Eve are a microcosm of this. I mean, the reason they eat of the fruit is Satan says, like, did he really tell you that? Man. I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's not as trustworthy and good as you. Like they just begin with distrust God's goodness, and and I mean, it's God's goodness, ironically, that that is the very reason He told them not to eat of that tree. Mm-hmm. And so, in some ways, what I'm always trying to do in the way I I do therapy, um, and I like the way you said it, it, like it's incarnational in the sense that I'm trying to be physical manifestation of this goodness and trustworthiness that that so much of our behavior our, our our pain and suffering and is driven by a deep and abiding sense that God can't be trusted mm. he doesn't want what's best for me and so I better I better step in the gap yeah I better step in the gap and I better take care of me and so I have all these self-protection strategies and my self-protection strategies initially help me feel safe and secure and help me feel like I'm getting what I need. But ultimately they tend to put me in positions to be hurt and harmed by others, to be wounded and to feel anxious and feel yeah. depressed. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, as you were talking about the therapeutic relationship, um, I couldn't help but think of the, the concept of neuroception mm-hmm. just that our, our bodies are always detecting even when we're not conscious of it and that the whole system of, of being safe or feeling unsafe and that detection the body is going through is both happening faster than our conscious thought, but then also being filtered through our memories. Yes. Um, yeah. But my, but in a way, like when we're together, my nervous system's interacting with your nervous system through all these yes. cues. There's a direct communication yeah. there separate yes. from my consciousness. So, yes. so I'm just thinking of, um, you know, being safe for someone isn't a matter of technique. Like it isn't a matter of like, hold your face <laughs> this way and sit in the chair that way and then say these words when they get in. But it's actually like the, the therapist being regulated and then yes. actually fully being present um, yeah. is the corner. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen these experiments, Andrew? Um, they're called the still face experiments. It's awful. Yeah, it's all it's awful. Um, it's like what mother would like do this willingly? Uh, but so you have you have a mom and a child, and and you know, mom's interacting. And what, what you realize is exactly what you're saying is there's this dynamic interaction in the relationship where mom is responding to the child's level of activation, 
and it's fluid, it's dynamic. And then mom, for two minutes, she has to still face the child, not respond. And what's amazing is how quickly the child becomes dysregulated. Mm. It screams, pushes, cries, won't look at mom, and then decomposes. It just falls apart emotionally. And, and part of what that, um, it's a really nice sort of image of, in some way, I think of therapy, because when I'm trying to be safe for someone, it's dynamic. Yeah, you're right. It's not just like I, I open my body posture and look them in the eyes and smile. No, for some clients, it might be, I might sort of subtly pick up that they need some gentle smiles. But for others, I might, I might lean in. For others, actually, I might realize that I need to lean out a little bit because to lean in would cause too much activation. So I might start off actually leaning back a little bit, giving them a little bit of space. I mean, I have clients who won't sit back in the chair because they come in, they're so anxious, they're so overwhelmed. They won't sit back on the couch. And so how do I make them feel safe? In some ways, I actually, for them, I'll mirror what I, or I'll model what I want them to see. So I'll sit really far back and kind of sink in, you know? I'll lower the tone of my voice. I'll, and so, so for some clients, I lower my voice. For some clients, I speak louder. It's this dynamic thing, right? I'm communicating with their central nervous system. And, and, but I'm big enough and I'm regulated enough, at least in that moment, to be able to sort of adapt and adjust to precisely what they need. And, and then that begins, you, you know, you see it, you see moments of when they finally take a deep breath or when their body finally sinks in the chair a little bit, or when they stop wringing their hands and they just kind of let their hands relax, you see it. I'm taking this in. I'm, I'm, I really am. If I don't have that with a client, if I don't have safety and trust, if they don't trust my desire um, for their goodness. I'm, I'm generally of the opinion that we, it's really hard to get far. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. And I, we do the same thing with God too. Cause like, yeah. I can't help but think that when once Adam and Eve sinned, right they ran, they hid from God, right? Their nervous yep. system was detecting danger in the Threat. divine yep. presence. Um, so I think the same is the case for us when we enter into prayer, right? Like, like if I start to try to pray and I'm distracted, I can't focus, my mind is jumping around, right? I assume that I'm, I probably have too much of a sympathetic charge. Like I'm dysregulated. There's something going on with my autonomic nervous system. And if I spend time to address what's going on in my physical state, Right, yes. by maybe breathing or, or anchoring on something in the room or spending some time, um, you know, journaling yes. out what's going on inside of me or whatever, right? Then yes. I can actually yes. focus on what I want to meditate on. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I think God takes the time to teach us that He's safe. I, I do too. I think the problem is, um, yeah, I think the problem is very often. Um, and, and so some of this stuff is debated and contested. So I don't, I don't want to talk about it with too much like authority, absolutely. But are you familiar with Kahneman's system one, system two, or no. fast and slow thing? Okay. So there's this theory um, of, of dual cognition. Hmm. And the idea is that we're processing things on a 
didactic level on a on a rational didactic intellectual level mm. and then there's a sort of um, and that, that sort of slow deliberate discursive right and then there's a fast system it's our like intuition it's it's predominantly emotional and it's quick so you have sort of the slow deliberate thoughts and then you've got like the gut emotional quick thoughts yeah and the theory is that they're they're operating uh, simultaneously and and sometimes one is more active than the other and okay um but it's contested sort of philosophically and okay but but there does seem to be a sense in which uh, we can sit down to pray. And if you ask every student at Franciscan University, who is God? Who is God? They will say, God is a good, good father. He's loving. He's merciful. He's kind and good. He's, and that is the right answer. I mean, and they not like, but if you measure, and I, I've done the, I've done like pilot studies where I measure their attachment or their sort of felt security with God, the sort of emotional experience of God, the felt security. If really, really highly anxious attachments or avoidant attachments to God, while simultaneously saying God is good and loving. And, yeah. and so I think what happens to your point, Andrew, is we can sit down to pray. And yeah, I do think God wants to communicate his safety and security to us. But there's a part of us that goes, yeah, but what about that time when... My father left. Where were you then? And what about that time? So my sense is that God wants to speak to our heart. Corad corloquitor. He mm. wants to like yeah. speak to the depths of our being. But sometimes um, sort of this, this discursive, rational mind gets in and puts all sorts of obstacle or barriers up. Mm. Well, I don't know. Was that just God or was that actually me? Or... I don't know, is can God say he really loves me and is he all good because I lost a baby to miscarriage? I mean, it's all these obstacles and objections are flying around in my head that I think can impede the voice of God. And and so yeah. in some ways, and I'm gonna try to like I think what you said about calming my nervous system down, one way to maybe hear that voice, God speaking, God's communicating his safety is to try to calm my central nervous system down, calm the autonomic arousal down. Because sometimes when I calm the, that autonomic arousal down, the scurrying thoughts and the constant objections and the constant sort of threat detection calms a little bit. Um, I think another way to do it is to go back into the past hmm. and to face some of those things yeah. that feel like such objections that... that the pain, the suffering, the things that we spend a lot of time, attention, and energy, I think, trying to avoid. I think when we do the work and we we face up to them. And I don't know, man, I've developed this program that, you know, I actually forgot about it, so you just said it, but I developed this program called Known, Embraced by the Heart of the Father. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a 12-week program to help you increase your attachment, your sense of security with God the Father. Mm-hmm. But one of the exercises we do, and this isn't a lot of things, but we ask people to go back into particular memory, a core memory, and we ask them to begin by imagining God is hugging you, God is holding you, 
they're in this intimate embrace with, with the father. Maybe he's holding your hand. Maybe you're sitting on his lap. Maybe, And then you allow him to lead you back into this memory. Yeah. But you're with him now. You're not alone. Now you're with him. And you allow yourself to try to see what God the Father is saying to you about that experience. Hmm. Because oftentimes we, we, we draw the wrong conclusions about very difficult, painful experiences. Yeah. Right? This is our semantic memory. We sort of, we learn the wrong facts. Uh, we, we learn the wrong, like, facts about how the world works, how people work, how. Hmm. And what we need to do is go back into that memory and go back in. And I think then we can hear. So there we are. We're using our imagination like you talked about earlier. Yep. I'm in this loving embrace with the Father as I'm going back to this play, painful place. And from that place, we, I think we're disposing ourselves to allow him to communicate his safety and love and trustworthiness and goodness. I love that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. The As you're saying that, it, like imagination i think is involved in every like apperception we ever have like there's always a mingling of it right so like if if we're having this conversation because of my history right i i'm i know certain things about you i -hmm. see certain things about you but then i imagine certain things about you absolutely right and a lot of that is formed out of my memory of my past right because my my nervous system wants to keep me safe it's a pattern making machine Yep. So it's constantly anticipating based on my previous experiences, what's coming up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, so the, the issue is, is kind of in the first place, I think is our, our, our imagination trying to help us, but not knowing how, right. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, we should have like a gratitude toward it, <laughs> but on the other hand, we also need to like lead it in the right direction. And so yeah, it right. makes perfect sense that we would use that imagination, basically like teach it. And, and with that, yeah. Uh, as you were talking, I, I couldn't help but think of, um, like, in classical thought, they actually made a distinction between two different functions of our reason, between intellectus and ratio. Yeah. Um, and and I've, I've kind of, like, stumbled around in this a little bit in my thinking, but I'm trying to do a deep dive on the topic right now. And, and with that, so, so Dr. Conrad Bars, are you familiar with him? A, a Catholic yeah, psychiatrist sure. whom... Yeah, healing, healing your emotions. Of, of integrating. Yep. 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 I'll, I'll put all the stuff we're talking about. I have previous episodes on, so I'll throw those in the show notes for the audience. So anyone that's listening right. that wants to like catch up on these themes, I'll yeah, put it in the yeah. show notes with the times so you can go back to previous episodes. Um, so, so in, in one of his books, he draws a connection. He felt like there was a connection between intellectus, this kind of more intuitive reasoning, the more kind the of hip- simple of the mind, just coming to something in the concupiscible passions meaning our attractions toward things or too much or too little. And then a connection between our ratio, our, our reason, our kind of discursive thinking and our concupiscible yep. passions. Um, and um, one of the reasons I'm doing the deep dive is I'm not sure he completely understood those terms in light of St. Thomas's teaching. So I'm, I'm yeah. like, yeah, I like really need to you- dig in and make sure I don't, like say wrong yeah. things, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know, do you know, um, Dr. Kevin Majors is a psychiatrist up in Boston. Um, he has a, he's a podcast called the golden hour. Okay. Um, and he has, yeah, yeah, he has a I've... program. Yeah. A program called optimal work. 
Yeah. Um, so he's doing a lot of neat work. Um, devout Catholic. Uh, he has an article. You, you'd have to Google it, but he has an article um, where he basically says, look, Bars gets Thomas's understanding of the passions wrong and, and here's how and here's, here's why. Okay. He's That's a fascinating funny. guy. He's a, he's a, he's a psychiatrist. He's a medical doctor. Um, he's one of the few psychiatrists that I know that actually practices psychotherapy. Um, nice. so he, he's been trained at, yeah, well, no, he's actually been trained at Beck's, um, the CBT Institute. Oh. So he does a lot of work. Yeah. So old school in the sense that he's doing therapy, but he yeah. does CBT, you know, but he also knows theology. I mean, the story about him is, and maybe it's hagiographical, but the story is that he read the Summa when he was in high school. Uh, and he, I think he's, he at least has a, a pretty solid knowledge of St. Thomas. And so his article out there, if you Google it, he has an article where he suggests that um, Bars doesn't quite understand the passions correctly. Okay, I need to read that. I so yeah. I realized when you said optimal work that I follow him on YouTube, and he's on like That's, my my like dream guest list. I think too. So I'm oh gonna, yeah, I'm gonna have to go after. He's him great. See if you can reach come out on. to him. Um, um, and if you can't, he works with a guy, Sharif Nunes. Sharif Yunus um, is does a lot of work uh, on optimal work. Okay, with with Kevin, and so. Not, not that Sharif is like Kevin Lett, but Sharif would also be a great guest. Okay, cool. I'll, yeah. I'll go for both and of them. And that he's more time maybe than Kevin's incredibly busy. Yeah, incredibly, yeah. But yeah. Um, but yeah, to your point, I, I think there's a lot there. And I actually, I want to personally do a deeper dive into, into sort of this Thomistic framework, Aristotelian Thomistic framework. And then see, maybe do different therapies touch different dimensions? You know, like does CBT sort of focus on like ratio and maybe uh, internal family systems or emotion-focused therapy really focuses on the passions mm. and I don't know, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, these third-wave mindfulness-based therapies, maybe they actually are some, like I want to see if we can situate where some of the modern therapies touch a, a sort of classical anthropology, like understanding of the human person, so we can get a better sense of maybe how and why they're working, at least from a classical, a classic Thomistic anthropology, yep. and then see if there's anything too that they, they might be able to add. I mean, I think all the, all the, all the really great Thomists who I know will also say, look, I mean, um, St. Thomas has so much there, but connections can be made and things can be advanced and there are things he might not have recognized. We know things now empirically and we need to we try to carve out space for them in a Thomistic psychology. And so I think there can be a bi-directional relationship, but but I'm really interested in, in sort of a deeper dive into that myself. Um, yeah, we'll have to stay in touch oh, about it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I just finished a great article on it. And um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, there's a, a ton there. Um, a ton. I'm curious about, um, so we have this, the autonomic nervous system shifting between states of safety and danger, right? We're always yeah. perceiving and shifting, but then we also yeah. have our central nervous system, our brain. Yep. And I think one of the theories that might be r related to that kind of dual processing idea or the, the speed at which 
you know, our, our nervous system is processing things might be, and I know this is to some extent, not a truthful idea, but the old theory of the lateralization of the brain, the kind of old right brain, left brain idea. Sure. But I think what comes out of that is basically this, this kind of dual processor notion where the one side of the brain is running more on attachment, love running on relationships, maybe laying down more of the implicit memory. Yeah. And the other side of the brain is more involved in the discursive thinking, the rational yeah, thinking, the language. And on that yes. side, we're laying down more of the explicit memory. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and with that, um, a, uh, a great book that I've mentioned on this, on the show before, the other half of church, they just point out the fact that so much of what we do in the church is focusing on the side of the brain dealing with all the, the discursive thinking. It's like, read the book. No do the Bible study, listen to no. this lecture, listen to the podcast. I mean, not to yeah. condemn my own, what I'm doing right here, but, um, Shoot yourself <laughs> but, but oftentimes people are coming to the, these, these materials, hoping that their behaviors change, right? They're hoping to, to be able to show up differently when they're stressed out that, it, you know, at night when they're uncomfortable, they don't turn to whatever online or the next time their kid freaks out, they don't, you know, yell at them or, you know, that they don't overeat when they're tired and lonely at the end of the day. Or, you know, we have all these, just very practical and, and very human struggles. But so many of the tools that the church offers us don't really address the part of our nervous system that drives that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if that's, um, it's probably twofold, right? I mean, there's probably a broader issue here that's, that's like, um, in order to, to do that, that that requires like deep personal connection. Yeah. And that's vulnerable and scary for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, I mean, look, this is the greatest plug in some ways um, for your own healing. Like there are certain things you won't be able to communicate to others if you want to evangelize. If, if you're constantly dysregulated or in a, a state of sort of fight or flight or threat threat and distress because you won't be able to communicate that safety mm. um and and as a result of that you'll want to keep it intellectual look if i'm worried about you hurting me in some way if i'm if i come into this podcast and i'm worried that you're going to try to have a gotcha moment or you're gonna um you know try to make me look like a fool i'm going intellectual yeah this is this is scary you can hurt me here. I'm vulnerable here. But this, we can do intellectual jujitsu all day, right? Yeah. Um, and so in a lot of ways, and, and this sounds like you know the old sort of psychodynamic or psychoanalytical defense mechanisms, but intellectualizing, mm-hmm. it's a nice space between me and the other yeah. such that I can communicate what I need to and not risk being hurt or drawn into a space of vulnerability. Hmm. The problem is like when you when you really love somebody when you really love somebody like inherent in that is allowing yourself to be drawn into a place or space where you could be hurt. It, it risks, there's a risk involved with loving somebody. Um, and 
And what's really difficult about Christianity, about Catholicism, is we're called to love. But like, gosh, that can hurt like a lot. It can hurt a lot. Um, you know, all sorts of situations. You allow yourself to care about others. You allow yourself to be seen um, and to see others. That means that um, there can be pain and distress. And, and so I think a lot of us are just uncomfortable with that. And so, so all that to say, that was a really long-winded way of saying, I'm not sure it's the church as much as it is us in that the, the church's tools and, and what it offers are generally probably aimed at the heart. But, but the way we have, the way we bring them to others, the way that we, I think we intellectualize them or priests intellectualize them or mm-hmm. whoever's giving us these goods tends to keep a distance precisely because, I mean, could you imagine if your priest really loved everyone in the, in the parish? Yeah. You'd be exhausted. I mean, like, uh, You'd be how, like do you, Jesus. how do you go to Yeah. It's right. Um, it might be so difficult that you experience agony. Right, it, it might be like the way a dad feels at night when I think about my six kids and how there's certainly no way I'm able to meet all of their needs emotionally and spiritually and physically. And I'm overwhelmed by my sense of inadequacy. And like I've allowed myself to be drawn into the story of my daughter who's struggling in this way and the story of my son who's struggling this way and the four-year-old who just wants chocolate chips and rainbow sprinkles. And like I'm, I'm, you know, it's, you open yourself up it's easy to be a dad and to take a 20,000 foot view and to approach everything intellect. Son, you need to take this to prayer. Hmm. Have you asked our Lord to help you? Like, have you prayed a rosary? You know, daughter, that's like different than being like, come here, babe. And like having her curl up in my lap and saying, let's ask God for help. Let's ask him. Do you want me to lead or do you want to lead? Now all of a sudden I'm like, I, I'm, it's going to cost. My heart's engaged. And I'm afraid for her. And I'm afraid that maybe God isn't going to show up in the way I want him to in her life. And now I'm like, and and so all that to say, I think you're right. I think, you know, not to create a false dichotomy here, but I think God predominantly, I mean, he, it's faith, hope, and love. Mm -hmm. St. Paul tells us, but like the one that remains, the one that persists is love. Like, and in some ways, we are a religion of love, and that has to be rightly understood, obviously. And there's all sorts of caveats about what love is and isn't. Yeah. But it is a relationship of love and about falling in love more deeply with Christ, this church. And, and that, man, that's not just an intellectual exercise. Knowledge can aid love. The more I know my yeah. wife, the more I'm able to love her, and the better, right? It, but knowledge alone is insufficient. But we can we can fool ourselves in thinking that our knowledge is love. Yeah. I know so much about I know the early church fathers, I know the Greek, I can read the Bible in, you know, in Koine Greek, I can read the Vulgate, I can you know, I know all of the Eastern fathers on that doesn't mean you love. Yeah. You know. Um love so- is to t- give myself over mm-hmm. to the other. And, and that man is risky and scary. Yeah, that's the incarnation. You know, it's like God, how did God become vulnerable to us other than to become a man? Um, yes. 
And like so much of what doesn't make sense in the scripture, I think makes sense in light of this, right? Like, like something difficult, like the messianic secret, like Jesus goes to extreme lengths to try to basically not have a lot of people around. <laughs> like he yeah. wanders off into the wilderness by himself. He like doesn't take the momentum wave when people are chanting for him and following him. He's constantly telling people not to tell about what's happened. Yeah. And yes. When I enter into this and ponder it, it just strikes me that like, it's because Jesus, I believe, is trying to give the apostles a new attachment, right? Right. Jesus, by living with those 12 men for three years, is reconfiguring oh their nervous systems. 100%. Safety, trustworthiness, yeah. goodness. I, I mean, I think about what he, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this a little bit before we, we started recording, but I've got this idea that's been percolating a little bit. So attachment is about felt security. Mm-hmm. It's activated in times of threat or distress. And there's some marks of attachment. So commonly we talk about proximity seeking. I want to be close to to my caregiver or or a safe, secure bay. I want to be close to the caregiver. I want to view them as a safe haven. I'll experience attachment anxiety and I'll view them as a safe base from which to explore the world. Like the marks of a secure attachment. Proximity seeking, safe haven, attachment anxiety, and safe base. I think the liturgy is fascinating. So when you go to mass, one of the first things that happens, we bless ourselves, opening prayer, penitential rite. I'm a grievous sinner. I beat my breast and I say, I'm, I'm, I'm a grievous sinner. Hmm. And all of a sudden, I think if we're, if we're living the liturgy, if we're present there, we should have a moment that's like, oh no, uh-oh. I think threat, or dis- threat and distress should immediately heighten. Like left to your own devices, just from last week, just from seven days ago, if you're really if you're really able to enter into those words and say them, like you know who you are and you know what you're about mm. and you know what you're capable of, and that's kind of terrifying. And so threat and distress immediately arises. And I think what happens in the liturgy is we have this activation, right, of our attachment behavioral system because we've just experienced threat. You're a sinner and on your own, you're screwed. If I can say that, but yeah, yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah. And so Very now good. all of a sudden, what, is, what does God do throughout the liturgy? He meets us in his word. So one way you communicate safety and security to a child is through the tone of your voice mm. yeah, and the words you say. And so we get the liturgy of the word. Almost right away, we get the liturgy of the word, which... I don't know if you had to summarize the liturgy of the word, it's something like, I'm here, I'm with you, you're mine, I've got a plan, I want to be among you, I want to be, right? And I think in some way, all of the stories all point to like that narrative in some way, right? Yeah. You're mine, you're safe, got you, trust. So we're in this attachment space because we're a sinner and we're in trouble and God's saying, like, you're okay. You're okay. You're okay. You're okay. I've got this. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I'm, I've got this. And then proximity seeking, where do we get this in the liturgy? Well, like in the Eucharist, like God comes to it. Like my daughter comes to me and wraps her arm around my leg when she's scared, or she climbs into bed with me at night 
and she presses her body against it. Well, in the Eucharist, we get an even more intimate proximity seeking. Yeah. God's like, I'm spiritually united to you in a way that's so profound, closer to you than you are to yourself. And then you say, well, where's the, where's the using the world as the safe, secure base? Well, the end of every liturgy, we say, go forth. There's a sending out into the world, but always with the ability to look back and see that our caregiver, our loving, safe, big, gentle caregiver is right there. Hmm. Well, I can go into the world with utter confidence and look back. Oh, there you are. I'm okay. Oh, there you are. It's what my daughter does when we go to the park. She takes 10 steps forward and then all the kids start playing and she looks back like, am I okay? Okay, maybe it's okay. And she'll go a little further. Am I okay? And we get sent out at the end of the mass with the ability to look back and say, am I okay? You're okay. I'm still here. Anyway, I think the whole liturgy, I mean, we call the church mother. Where does the, I mean, the liturgy is taking place in the heart of the church, right? In the heart of our mother. It's It's just this like, we're in the womb of the mother even maybe. Like it's just, there's so much symbolism and imagery, I think, around attachment, even within the heart of the liturgy. But you're right. Our, our Lord wants to heal. Original sin, maybe in some way, can be conceptualized as an attachment wound. Yeah. One that's self-imposed. Mm-hmm. Come to view God as unsafe, untrustworthy, not good, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Eve gives that to Adam and Adam reinforces it with Eve. Mm-hmm. And then God spends all this time saying, no, no, no. You can trust me. I'm here. I'm safe. I think we need to use our imaginations. I think we need to live the liturgy. We need to like be fully present to it. Yeah. To to allow it to to encounter us. Or how to say it, to allow us to deeply encounter it. Yeah. For what it is. But but also I think we need to use our imaginations and steep ourselves in these images of security and safety. Saint Therese has um this image she uses when she was made novice mistress. She said, Lord, like, you know, I'm not able to do this. I'm not, I'm not big enough. I'm not capable enough. Mm. And she said, here's the image I use. I imagine burying my, my head in the shoulder of the father. And he would give me all of the graces for the sisters. And without ever turning around to look at them, I would just hand the graces he had for them behind them. Huh. And she used this image to create a sense of safety and security. She steeped herself in it. And I think we need to do that. I think we need to use our imaginations to steep ourselves in images of the Father that heal that wound. Yeah. Yeah. And I talked so much there, Andrew. You're so patient. You're no, saying that's, that's good. <laughs> so you're, you're like, I have like notes and you're like, you're taking the conversation where I was going to. So I'm like, you're doing yeah. all the work. It's wonderful. Uh, so uh, as you were talking, I, I have paragraph 239 of the catechism here. Yes. It says, by calling God Father, the language of faith indicates two main things, that God is first origin of everything in transcendent authority, that he is at the same time goodness and loving care for all his mm-hmm. children. God's parental tenderness can also be expressed by the image of motherhood, which emphasizes God's imminence, mm. the intimacy yes. between creator and creature. The language of faith thus draws on the human experience of parents who are in a way the first representatives of God for man. But this experience also tells us that human parents are fallible and can disfigure 
the face of fatherhood and motherhood? So often do. Yeah. Look, I mean, so much of the work I do, particularly when it dovetails with some of the God stuff, so much of the work I do, look, we have tremendous loyalty to our parents. Yeah. Sort of a sign of a secure attachment is actually the ability to um, <coughs> talk honestly about the deficits and shortcomings of a parent. Mm. What most people do is say something like, I had really great parents. Um, I know they love me. That's always like the first stage of therapy is like, yeah. I had really great parents. I know they love me. I, you know, they, they would do anything for me. And I'm like, no, I know. I know. But like what so much of the things we learn and, and, and they're, they're taught to us by our parents implicitly. It's not like our parents are oftentimes saying, sometimes they are. Sometimes not so great parents teach us the wrong thing explicitly, but very often our parents unintentionally teach us things that are, that they're not trying to communicate, but do. Mm. Um, when parents shut down certain feelings or emotions, when parents overly praise us for getting you know, really good grades or certain achievements, kids can sometimes learn, I'm lovable when I do this. Yeah. It's like, and that's not what the parents trying to communicate, but they unintentionally communicate it. Hmm. Um, I, I know parents who have said to their kids, oh my gosh, you got a 93? That's great. Oh, wow, so great. I bet you could get a 97. <laughs> and the parent thought, I'm encouraging my child. And the child thought, I can never live up to my parents' expectations. Yeah. And so often, unintentionally, parents disfigure this image of the father. And it, it's, if I think about it too much, it's, uh, it's really scary as a parent to think about all the ways that I'm unintentionally communicating untruths about God the Father to my kids. Yeah. And, and what it does is if I allow it and if I'm in a good place personally, it drives me to my knees in faith and hope and love. Yeah. Um, when I'm not in a good place, I just ignore it and I avoid it and I probably act out of well, central nervous system around, and then I'm a worse father. Yeah. Well, just the idea that I can't criticize my parents, it betrays the truth, right? Cause, exactly. Because it means that I learned that my parents aren't big enough to be criticized. Andrew, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A parent that is mature and healthy and should be able to hear the criticisms of their child and hold it and still feel okay. Uh, it, we call this, you know, the old psychodynamic term is a holding environment. Parents are holding environments. Yeah. They signal that I can hold all of you. Mm. Those pieces that feel chaotic and unruly, that feel big, that feel unacceptable, I can hold it. I can handle it. And it doesn't shake or destroy or dysregulate me. But so oftentimes as parents, what we actually signal is, when you do that, I'm not okay. Yeah. The kid learns dad's not safe in this particular situation or regard. Mm. And I see this in my own parenting. You know, I really, I mean, I do. And, um, but that's exactly, it's so a part of therapy is, is creating a space with me where they feel willing to take the risk of criticizing their parent. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, I know the, 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 the enemy plays spiritual jujitsu with us. So, you know, the, the second we start to recognize 
our parents' failings, then his next move is for you to get you to focus on your own failings, right? Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. So yes. this is yeah. this is this is just his yeah. common move sequence. You know, the 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 left hook, then the right uppercut that he tries on us is deny what your parents did to you. Oh, and then by the way, you're such a terrible parent. So then they hit you from the other direction. And we yeah, I think we just gotta keep <laughs> just letting yeah. those glance off. Um and sometimes I'll sometimes what I'll do too is I'll I find that when I'm honest, you know, this is one of the steps in the book is being honest with yourself about who you are and where you are. And and rather than having to pretend like I'm further ahead or you know, to honestly accept in humility where I am allows me to turn to God uh, with with like a childlike like with the right sort of disposition, which is sort of like a childlike I can't do this. Like I'm, I'm really struggling in this particular way, and I can't seem to get over this. And um, I need your help. It, it, it's like when you know my my daughter needs help scooping ice cream out of a container. Right? If she's sometimes she'll say, I mean, she's four and she's trying to be competent in things. She'll say, I got it, Dad. I got it. I got. It. I'm like, you don't, sister. You know what I mean? Like, but you're gonna find out in a second you don't, and you're gonna want that ice cream, and you're gonna ask for my help. Um, and so sometimes when I'm honest about where I am. And I'll say, look, look, I'm not the worst parent. I'm not. So I'm not going to listen to the lie of Satan, which is like, you're the worst. Yeah. Your kids are going to be screwed up forever. The problem with Satan's story is it's almost always exaggerated or catastrophized. Yeah, absolutes. But the truth is like, I'm a fallible parent and I do hurt my kids and there may be some consequences. And if I am willing to accept that in humility and truth, then I turn to God and say, help me, please help me. I want to get better, but I, I'm really struggling here. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I know I'm not meeting this particular kid's needs in the way they need them met, or I know my fear, my shame, my embarrassment. Please help. I turn to God the right way when I'm honest about who I am and what I am and how I am. But the key is to not buy the excessive story that Satan often tells. Yeah, yeah you know. Sure. Um, so I'll so land the plane our, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have like 500 more things to talk about. I know, but, man. Well, we have to do this again. We will do this again. I'd love yeah. that. Barely would. Yeah. Well, well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. I want everyone in the audience to consider going and getting his book. Um, I just lost the name of the book, of course. It is Finding Freedom in Christ. Finding in Freedom of Christ, Healing Life's Hurts. It's it's yep. it, it, there's a great synthesis of like all kinds of great psychological theories with a bunch of great theology. And it's yeah, it's like it's very clean how you did it. I love it. Um, Thanks. so I highly recommend it cause then it becomes very practical right. too. Um, so we go, go to get a copy of the book. If you feel like you need some help, I'll put links in the show notes to, um, to Dr. Bruner's practice, but then I'll also put links to other yeah. good Catholic counseling services in the links in the show notes. And, um, Peace. and with that, everyone, thanks for joining us for physically spiritual God bless. Thank you so much for joining me for physically spiritual. I'm grateful for every single minute of the show you've watched. Uh, if you haven't yet, please like, follow, subscribe, and share the show. Help others find this great content. If you love what you hear here and want to help it to happen, please consider becoming a patron of the show. You can do that by going to physicallyspiritual.com. There's different giving levels. And one of the great perks you'll get is to enter into a deep dive with me. So every month to the patrons, I publish a video where I talk about what I'm reading, what I'm considering for upcoming shows, my thought process, and what guests are coming up. 
So God bless everyone and thank you for joining us.